Welcome to the Rainbow Asylum Podcast. This is an audio-based resource for anyone interested in learning more about the challenges faced by LGBTQ asylum seekers in America. Our goal is to raise awareness on the issue to inspire action and change. Before we get into the main content of the episode, we wanted to provide a trigger warning related to stories and details of violence, sexual harassment, and rape. Please only listen if you are comfortable and make sure to take care of yourself. This episode will focus on the on-the-ground experience of LGBTQ plus asylum seekers. We will be discussing what the asylum process looks like for this community of people with a social work micro lens to the real-life complications of U.S. domestic policies. We will also have a special guest interview at the end of the episode, so make sure to stay tuned. So first, I'm going to go over a couple facts about the history on LGBTQ immigration. I know that not all LGBTQ people have HIV, but people with HIV were not allowed to enter the United States until 2010. So before 2010, if you had HIV and you needed to migrate to the U.S. for safety, you could not come to America, even if you were running from persecution, if you had HIV. Until 2013, LGBTQ immigrant couples were denied the services that heterosexual immigrant couples were granted. And currently, specific policies that affect LGBTQ asylees are the Migrant Protection Protocols, a policy where you have to stay in Mexico until your case is approved, and Title 42, a policy that stopped migrants from coming in due to COVID-19. There are a number of policies and rules that are in place in order to qualify for asylum. They first have to prove that they are at risk of persecution due to race, ethnicity, religion, national origin, political opinion, or identifying with a certain social group. The government has definitions for each of these terms listed. Reasonable fear and future persecution are separate terms. And race, religion, national origin, political opinion, and membership in a certain social group are all one term, but just under different categories. Reasonable fear is defined as the likelihood of this person being murdered due to their identity if they are forced to go back home. They have to prove both objective and subjective fear. Subjective fear is the person telling you about their fear of what will happen to them. Objective fear is the outsiders seeing the fear and verifying that it is a legitimate fear that is present. They don't need to prove that persecution is 100% certain if they go back home. They just need to explain how LGBTQ people are being persecuted in their country of origin. Even if someone's chances of being persecuted in their home country are only 10%, they can still pass this phase. The definition of fear of persecution is where the applicant has to convince them that the chances of persecution are high. They can explain that they have been attacked before, and they can also present the policies and laws in place in their country that explain the penalty for being LGBTQ. If they haven't been attacked... They can just show those anti-LGBTQ policies in their country. For the terms race, religion, national origin, political opinion, and membership in a certain social group, the applicants can apply under any one of those terms. They have to choose which category of identity and prove that they are a member of that identity. Their definition and the immigration officer's definition of their sexuality may be different, 
So statements that prove membership in an LGBTQ organization or proof of marriage tend to clear this up. The second requirement is that they have to be in the United States. Lots of people seeking asylum come to the U.S. with either B visas or other documents at, at or no documents at all. They can only apply for asylum if they are in the U.S. Even if they are in detention in the U.S., they can still apply for asylum. The third requirement is that they have to apply for asylum within one year of arrival. When it hasn't been quite a year yet, they can fill out and turn in a skeleton case, and then they can add more documents and supporting information later to support the application. If they've been in the country for more than a year, they might be able to state exemption from that rule if they can make an argument about how their situation has changed after the one-year mark or how they were not able to file for asylum during that year due to whatever reason, like mental illness or they didn't know about it. However, if they wait too long, like a few months after their situation has changed, then the government might not believe that they are running from persecution. There are things that stop someone from getting asylum, like getting into the U.S. illegally, working and schooling here illegally does not stop someone from getting asylum. The things that stop someone from getting asylum is having an aggravated felony, being caught supporting a terrorist group, or playing a role in killing others. Other bars are cases where the immigrant had the opportunity to come live in another country other than the U.S. and their home country, but they chose to come to the U.S. Or the other bar is the immigrant is applying for asylum after they have been in the U.S.A. for a year or more and their status was not legitimate. Another one is that their, their asylum application was just denied. These bars don't apply to the immigrants who qualify for asylum. A U.S. asylum attorney is the best chance an immigrant has to get a step-by-step plan to getting U.S. citizenship under asylum status. And there are no exceptions for people at risk of persecution. The government said that there are exceptions for people that are at risk and that the LGBTQ population counts as an at-risk population, but it's up to the border patrols on whether or not they apply those exceptions. And as a result, some LGBTQ refugees have been turned away at the border without being screened for asylum. Thanks so much, Trisha. I wanted to add that when I was researching for this, um, I found a case comment um, titled Punishing Masculinity and Gay Asylum Claims that basically was putting forward the information that when the asylee um, presents their case to the judge, that there is an opportunity for the judge to have bias and and noting this like the United States's conceptualization of LGBTQ identity. Um, so for instance, in this case, they were kind of discussing how LGBTQ identity is very different in like the context of Mexico. So even if two males are engaging in homosexual relationships, um, only the man who is in the quote unquote feminine position is considered gay within that context. So there can be a bias in when you're trying to present a claim of asylum based on your physical ex- appearance entirely and your mannerisms. It's it's amazing like how different cultures have different ideas on what is considered gay or lesbian or, you know, bi. And it's 
And then, you know, I, I think that they should all just get trained and have a universal, you know, definition when they're and and this is this is where like the cultural competence comes in mm-hmm. and cultural humility comes in because, you know, they're dealing with different cultures. And so they're going to have, you know, and everybody's going to have different ideas on what is LGBTQ and what's not. And then so they, they all need to come to a common ground and have a common definition and include the voices of these people at the table in creating that common definition so then they can get trained better and know, you know, how you know, about it and know about LGBTQ and know about these different cultures. One thing I noticed when I was researching too, you mentioned that part of the definition for asylum status is having to be part of a certain social group or a political group. And I know those two were the primary ones that LGBTQ plus people identified with within their asylum case. And it's it was really interesting because when I was reading, they have to argue very differently and have very different proof for each of those. It shows just how complex it is. And even everything that you shared, it really shows that they can't do it on their own. They need to have support from a lawyer to help them navigate. Or else I know if I were even trying to do this for myself, I would be completely lost. I wouldn't know what I was doing. So... When we think about this system, it's so important to keep that empathy in mind that they're navigating something that's not made to be easily navigated by a normal person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I like that point, Joy, because that also brings a subject of our this community we're talking about. They're LGBTQ identifying people, but who are coming from persecuted places. Mm-hmm. So when they come to the United States, the very idea of them having to suddenly reveal their identity and like being transparent with that is really hard. And as we've seen in a lot of these cases, it's not easy for them to do that. And then they get punished for having response to their own trauma. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is scary. Yeah, that's scary. But that's a good point. I think it really shows how it's a systematic issue as well, that we've set up an immigration system that's built to keep people out and to attempt to test everyone to make sure that they're being truthful and that they're deserving and all these kind of things instead of an immigration system that's built to help as many people as we can. Exactly. Yeah, I definitely feel that too. So most immigrants that come here have a sponsor, have employment links and special skills. You need an immigrant visa and a sponsor to get into the country And once you have a visa, you need to stay in the country for five years to be eligible for citizenship. And during this five years, you have limits on how much you can leave the country within those five years and for how long. Then you can get your green card that allows you to live permanently in the U.S. LGBTQ people have a hard time getting access to these higher employment skills. They don't always have a loving family or friends in the U.S. who can be a sponsor. Coming over here on an immigrant visa, already having a job here, is less of a reality for LGBTQ people because of the discrimination that they experience and the lack of access to learning skills in their home country. Their other option, as stated above, is to apply as an asylum seeker, but with this, they have to prove that they are running from persecution and describe what kind the persecution is and prove that kind of persecution. The asylum judge or officer may have bias, like we discussed, against the LGBTQ community, and this makes it much harder for them to get in. Um, and as stated earlier, like they have to prove their identity to an asylum judge who, 
as we said, don't doesn't have the definition of sexuality or have a step-by-step process of determining sexual orientation. So this also makes it harder for them to be understood and makes it harder for their cases to be accepted. Some LGBTQ refugees have ended up in Migrant Protection Protocol program, even if they don't qualify for this program because they are a special persecuted population. And the government did say they don't qualify for this program. Um, So this is the program that makes migrants remain in Mexico until their case has been approved. And LGBTQ people are separate from this population because they're an at-risk population And they somehow, by just lazily mistakes, end up in this population and in this pool. And then they have to just wait as if they're not seeking emergency asylum. I do know in what I've researched that the migrant protection protocols technically are over now, but sometimes we do still see that happening, um, especially at the borders. I think Joy's point just goes to show that Uh, Our whole entire immigration system is very confused and confusing even to the people who are working in it. Mm -hmm. And we really need some clarity in order to fix these problems for LGBTQ Mm -hmm. plus asylum seekers and anyone else trying to go through the immigration system. Mm -hmm. It sounds like there's no good options. (laughs) Yeah. There's no easy way. And I think it's set up to be that way. Yeah. Very, very complex. So here's how the process works. It can work in three ways. The first way is if the immigrant gets into the country illegally and is caught and brought back to ICE, then ICE gets the immigrant ready to be removed. If the immigrant says that he or she is escaping torture and persecution in their country of origin, an asylum officer will interview them. The asylum officer will make the call on if they have a legit fear of being persecuted. If the asylum officer is convinced, they will notify the courts by making a claim against having them be removed from the country. They will talk to the immigration judge, and the immigration judge will review the case, and ultimately the immigration judge will make the final call. If the asylum officer is not convinced that they are running from persecution, he will tell the immigration judge through an appeal. This will move along with the deportation. And at the same time, the immigrant can also apply for asylum. They can apply for convention against torture and withholding of removal. So if their asylum application is denied, they can still stay in the country with their applications for convention against torture and withholding removal if they are approved. However, getting approved for these two applications does not guarantee citizenship. The second way is the immigrant can ask for a reasonable fear interview if the country has ordered for them to be deported before and the country wants to try it again to remove them. The immigrant has to convince the judge that they are at risk of persecution and death if they go home. If they do proceed to remove the immigrant, he or she can apply for convention against torture or withholding of removal. The third way is if the immigrant was not caught and brought back to ICE and attempted to be removed, then they have a year to apply for asylum. Then they will follow through with an interview with an asylum officer. After the interview, the asylum officer can make the decision to allow the immigrant to stay in the U.S. or pass it on to the immigration court to start deporting the immigrant. If they are passed on to the immigration court, the immigrant can apply for a defensive asylum claim to fight the process of being deported. I'm 
mean, I think it's just depressing <laughs> in general. Um, I also start to question like how, I mean, the system, it's obviously just very inequitable. It's, it doesn't promote equity at all. And it just, it's really hard to sit with the idea that in this scenario, someone who's been through so much, so much trauma basically has to like plead <laughs> for someone to listen, but also to do something about it. And you're pleading with people who do this every day. So maybe they're desensitized or they have biases. I don't know. I think it's really challenging. I also wanted to note we're talking about a lot of policies that are in place right now. And we're recording this podcast in March of 2023. And it could be that next month, in the next year, Things could change drastically as it relates to policy for asylum, for refugees, for immigration. And it's all part of it being very complex. So like even right now, Biden is proposing new asylum policies that could go into effect in May that would change things drastically as well. So even as we are talking about these policies, it's also important for any listeners to recognize it. It's important to also do some of your own research, too, if it's especially in the future, to see what's happening now and how people are being impacted now when you're listening to it. And hopefully it's still current, but just be aware that things do change. It's important for us to stay aware of this, especially if we're helping professionals that could be trying to help people who are asylum seekers. It's good to be in the know and to do our own research as well. Definitely. Definitely. Well said. So the next section, we're going to talk about attacks and harassment at the border and just rudeness and denials by ICE. So near the U.S. border, LGBTQ asylum seekers can get kidnapped by the drug cartel and also gangs and get abused. One LGBTQ migrant described that she was kidnapped by gangs and they forced her into taking naked pictures of her. During her interview at the border, when she told an intake agent this, the agent told her, that he didn't care what was happening to her. They sent her back to Honduras, and she ran away out of Honduras, back to the Mexican-U.S. border again, but this time avoided going through ICE. So this type of treatment from ICE actually causes illegal immigration. This was through a Human Rights Watch interview. Several flee to the border but are worried that ICE will deny them and send them back due to being LGBTQ. So a lot of them hover near the border and wait for Biden's policy reform where they can for sure claim asylum or where they can get legal aid to make their case so they can get into the U.S. regardless of the restrictive policies. Some asylum seekers were forced to go back to Mexico without even being interviewed for asylum. When a gay couple came to the border, they were denied and sent to Mexico. On their way to the border, they had Mexican immigrant agents tell them that in order to keep moving, they had to give them money. They did this, and then when they finally made it back to them again, they said that one could stay because he was from Cuba, but the other could not. And during the interview, the agents told them to stop holding onto hands and stop touching. As a result of this, the couple just went back to Mexico. Another gay man who fled death and beatings in Honduras tried to avoid Mexico because of all the attacks on LGBTQ migrants there from police, and he was getting kicked out of shelters there. So he was on a bus to the Mexican border, 
and immigration agents made everyone get off the bus and pay $25 or else they would be sent back. When he went through border agents, he explained that he was running from persecution because he was gay and he was afraid of getting denied entry. They denied him, sent him back to Mexico and made him throw out all his documents and all the stuff he was carrying in case he carried a disease. The International Organization on Migration told Human Rights Watch at the border that it's repetitively happening that border control agents at the U.S. border are denying LGBTQ asylum seekers routinely when they're not supposed to. One LGBTQ member was riding a bus in Mexico and immigration agents pulled her off the bus and questioned her about where she was going. She answered them and told them about her situation. The immigration agent said that she was lying and that she was trying to get into the U.S. illegally. One of them wanted to do sexual things with her, and if she didn't, he was going to deport her. He said that if she reported him, he had her picture and he would come looking for her. This information was gathered at interviews between LGBTQ asylum seekers and Human Rights Watch representatives. So what do you all think of that? That's messed up. Can you believe that's happening? I mean, yeah, I don't know. I I can definitely believe that. And I don't know, in a very depressing way, but like it's it's pretty realistic. And I just hope those people who have been harassed and abused by others um, finally were able to like find some health and some care, you know, because I mean, these are these are important stories, but these are real people. And they're leaving a place where they're being persecuted and harassed and harmed to then go to try and get to a better place. But on Mm -hmm. their way, they're getting harassed and harmed. And it seems like a continuous cycle that hopefully can be broken if they come to the United States. But it's a long, arduous process. I just don't understand why the government hasn't done anything about this. Like if the government doesn't know a whole lot about this and why these specific ICE workers have not been sent in jail, have not been thrown in jail by now. They're violating everything. They're not even implementing a policy that Biden did make when he said these these are a special at risk population. But mm-hmm. I don't understand why they would just say, well, it's up to you if you want to implement it. And they just turn around. They don't even they, they're supposed to at least do their intake and talk to them. And they, there have been tons of LGBTQ people that are just turned down before even a screening. Yeah. And I think um, this is where we get into like power dynamics being really mm-hmm. skewed. I've done some research on ICE um, for a different course, actually. Um, but there's obviously a huge power difference. And so when you have that going on and also like it's not like a crazy thing to hear like of, you know, an ICE detainment, like things going really wrong there. You know, it's, it's just a thing that keeps happening. I don't know. There's some sort of power dynamic thing that keeps happening for a reason. I just I just feel like we need to cleanse the staff that works at ICE and just we need to cleanse. Apparently, they're running on a an ideology. They've got an ideology behind them. They be, the way they view immigrants is we need social workers in there. We need people that are <laughs> yeah. pro-immigrant to work at the Customs and Border Control. We need yeah. pro-immigration people working there. Yeah. And it, it is sad because looking at their policies, they actually do have some you would be surprised, like some um, relatively, not liberal, but like 
policies that that are set in stone that they have a thing of like how can we prevent like sexual assault and like rape like they have that policy but it is not like implemented like we've noted like they have these policies that like literally like this is what I would write too but it's it's not implemented and it's like far and few between you know, so they have and that's the crappy part also, because on their website, they say like all these things. We have all these policies, but it's the implementation, mm-hmm. you know, and it is very much lacking. And ICE acts more as law enforcement, which has a punitive lens for mm-hmm. how things should be done. Whereas it sounds like a great change would be if they had people in there that were there to uplift people and help people instead But we're not seeing that because ICE tends to want to be enforcing and seeing immigrants as people who are just breaking the law and thus, in their eyes, lack full humanity. I I totally agree. It's just it's just more of a policing agency that's totally punitive and and looks at immigrants as just totally like you're breaking the law. I mean, immigration is not breaking the law. You can immigrate, you know. So then just one last short section of just what happens when LGBTQ refugees get denied asylum in the U.S. When LGBTQ refugees are turned away, they are sent back to Mexico and are at more risk of being raped, beaten, murdered or kidnapped by the drug cartel and gangs or by the Mexican government officials, actually. They also don't have access to health care or gender affirming care. If they have HIV, they don't have access to antiretroviral therapy. They also can be taken to ICE detention centers, which is another option that can happen to them, um, where they don't have access, again, to basic necessities like hygiene supplies, medicine, and medical care, especially HIV medication if they have it. When the Human Rights Watch asked the Mexican government about this, the government said that they didn't know about it, They can't investigate and that the government does not allow that type of treatment on anyone and ended the call. Well, that's hilarious in like the worst way possible because, yeah, we know that's not true. It sounds like there's zero accountability because the people who are in limbo between trying to be in the United States but being sent to to back to Mexico, especially there, there's no legitimacy for them. They're not U.S. citizens. They're not citizens of Mexico, when there's no accountability for them, I think that's a lot of times where we see a lot of these atrocities happen because it makes them very vulnerable. There's no legal protection specifically for them in that situation. I, I don't understand how we like allow it to just happen. I, mean, I don't I don't get it. That's it, guys. It's all my information. So <laughs> great job, Trisha. Thank Why, you thank for you. that fantastic information. Thanks. We will now transition into the interview portion of this episode. I'm excited to introduce our guest for the podcast, Andres Molina. Andres is the Development and Communications Coordinator with the LGBT Asylum Project, located in San Francisco, California. In this conversation, we will learn more about the real-life experiences of queer asylum seekers and also hear about how this exceptional nonprofit is working to help them. Welcome to the Rainbow Asylum Podcast, Andres. Thank you for having me, Joy. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your role at the LGBT Asylum Project? Of course. So again, my name is Andres Molina. I'm the Development and Communications Coordinator here at the LGBT Asylum Project. And you know, I head all the communications, PR, uh, development, you know, anything that needs to be really done on the marketing side uh, is 
it all comes into into my jurisdiction, my domain. And I started at the LGBT Song Project in January of 2021. So previously, I had worked with the executive director and co-founder, Okan Shengan, uh, in his private practice, Okan, Okan Law. And I helped him launch his uh, YouTube channel. And in January I, of 2021, I they asked me to kind of join part-time after the previous position was open. And so I split my time between kind of both roles, one at the nonprofit, one at the private practice. And uh, in June of 2022, I kind of switched over 100% over to the to the nonprofit. And it's been really great. And I, you know, love working at the intersection of LGBT rights and immigration. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. If you could tell me a little bit more, what services does your organization provide? The LGBT Asylum Project is the only San Francisco nonprofit that exclusively uh, provides accessible legal representation for LGBTQ asylum seekers. And uh, these asylum seekers may be uh, fleeing persecution due to their sexual orientation, their gender identity, or even HIV status. We primarily help LGBT asylum seekers in the Bay Area. So we provide free monthly walk-in legal clinics. We do intake interviews and really assist asylum seekers at our Castro office and you know we've continued to provide our services in kind of a hybrid model uh, due to the pandemic we obviously switched over everything to 100% remote but we found that hybrid kind of worked for a lot of people and you don't really need to be in person to do a lot of these meetings and it's it's easier on some of our clients but we also help DACA recipients so you know that's kind of a program that's kind of up and down in the US but you can still do renewals so we help DACA recipients with their renewals and you know first time applicants can can apply again we would love to help them in the future too. Sounds like you guys do a lot, especially I know you're a smaller nonprofit, so it must keep you busy. <laughs> we are definitely always busy, but it's it's great work and we love doing it. Can you tell us briefly about any new programs your organization has started? Earlier this year, in February of 2023, we gathered uh, Parivar Bay Area, the Alwan Foundation, and Sitel Parivar under the umbrella name Center for Immigrant Protection. This is kind of a project that's years in the making, but it combines these organizations under one umbrella to help queer people. So Parivar Bay Area creates a safe space for South Asian trans and gender nonconforming individuals. Uh, the Alwan Foundation fights for LGBTQ uh, people in the Gulf region. So, for example, during the mass sports washing in 2022 of the FIFA Soccer World Cup that was held in Qatar, it you know became apparent that it was crucial to have an independent body by the local LGBT community to be represented in the Gulf. And uh, that's how the Alwan Foundation came about. And Sitel Parivar is designed to provide help in India to save the transgender lives and, and their livelihoods there. So we're kind of aiming to move forward as a hub in San Francisco and work mm -hmm. together to advance uh, LGBT rights, not just in San Francisco, but all over the world. So that's a very recent uh, project that we've uh, undertaken. So we're really proud of that. It sounds like a really important collaboration. It really is. And it's it's brand new. But I mean, I've kind of seen the, you know, behind the scenes, um, you know, planning and it's really been uh, years in the making. But uh, we're really happy to to be doing it now. And we've been the fiscal sponsor for Parivar for for a few years now. So it, it was unofficial until now. But now that we've, you know, kind of announced it, uh, it feels really great. And people are really excited to um, for these, you know, beloved organizations in the Bay Area to, to come together. Very cool. 
And what other services are there for queer asylum seekers in your community? We only provide the legal help for uh, the asylum seekers and the DACA recipients, but uh, we do a lot of referrals for social services. So the great thing about being in the Bay Area is how you know well connected uh, all the nonprofits are. We provide referrals for housing, for jobs, for medical. So whatever our clients need outside of legal help, we can direct them somewhere. So you know if they need to go to the Immigrant Legal Resources Center, we can refer them there. The SF AIDS Foundation is an organization that you know has been doing really great work for many years, and they're they're down the street from us. They have a beautiful office on the on Castro Street so we refer people there and they're very obviously queer friendly but also uh, friendly towards immigrants of, of any status so we're really proud to refer people there for any any medical needs they may have and other services include volunteer days something that we really missed during the pandemic was just being in community with our volunteers and our supporters so we try to do it once or twice a month where we have our volunteers come into our office and help us out with volunteer work whether it's uh, filing paperwork translations anything that needs to be done uh, we host it here at our office in in the castro in our organization we reserve seats for previous clients to serve on our board and really Our goal is to include trans people, not just in our board, but in our staff. So that's really important for us. And something a little bit more about our our board members is that we currently have three seats for former asylees. So I believe currently we have eight former asylees just making up our board and our staff. Three of them are former approved clients. So... That's amazing. You know, we try to have our board and our staff reflect our clients. Obviously, that's that's not possible because there's so many, you know, our clients come from, you know, can come from many parts of the world. Um, But our staff includes immigrants from Turkey, China, Mexico, the Philippines. We have first generation immigrants from South America. You know, our our staff is fluent in Spanish, Mandarin and Turkish and, you know, every other language. Uh, We have a database of volunteers who are willing to translate a few years ago Portuguese because we had... Uh, a lot of immigrant asylum seekers from from Brazil. So we had a huge need for somebody who could help us with uh, translating Portuguese. And, you know, previously I had never, you know, met, and I think I'd met one person, I had a friend in high school who, who spoke very broken Portuguese. It's really great to be here in the Bay Area where it's such a melting pot and it's so diverse and so many people speak so many languages and that's really great to help our clients. So this question relates more to what we have been discussing previously in this episode. I was wondering what challenges do LGBT asylum seekers specifically face in your community? So the great thing about San Francisco is that it's a sanctuary city, so it's very cosmopolitan and it's very supportive, but they still face the struggle of adjusting to a new culture. So our clients come from places where they've been discriminated against and persecuted uh, due to their sexual orientation, gender identity, um, HIV status. So coming here is just a culture shock where you don't really need to hide that in San Francisco. So it's adjusting to a new culture and many times without a support system. So asylum seekers are often targeted by their families, their friends, their loved ones, their communities. So they come here without a support system. They have to start over in a new culture and obviously just living, you know, anywhere in the U.S. is is obviously difficult. You need, you know, to have access to medical and healthcare, housing, everybody needs a job. So on one side, they're coming from violence to to safety, but the other part is, you know, how do they adjust to, to a new life here? And how do they find community? So it sounds like even though San Francisco is a pretty welcoming community, there still are many struggles. I bet that experience can be 
different too, depending where in the United States they end up settling. Yeah, absolutely. So as somebody who, you know, didn't grow up in the Bay Area, I'm from from Las Vegas. So both cities are very different. They're both in the U.S. They're both on the West Coast. But uh, San Francisco is really kind of a bubble. And something that we take really great pride in is being our office is in, is in the Castro District. It's on Castro Street. And it's, you know, kind of um, our executive director calls it the gay mecca. So he's <laughs> an, a former asylum seeker himself. And, you know, he always wanted to come to San Francisco to specifically to visit the Castro because it is just full of rainbows and it's a really really mm. great place so anybody who ever has a chance to walk Castro Street really feels that acceptance and you you walk down the street and you can see you know Sister Roma who's a, a drag queen and an activist and a huge supporter of organization just walking around in full drag <laughs> she's the you know most famous nun in the world it's really a bubble you don't really get that uh, experience um kind of outside of San Francisco. So it's one of my favorite places in the world. Sounds lovely. Just to add to that, just going back to kind of finding your own community as an asylum seeker, San Francisco is a great place to do it. You know, after, you know, some adjustment, you meet some people and all of a sudden, you know, our clients have found themselves like being part of drag houses and joining the gay men's chorus, you know, or joining an art class, getting into, you know, some sort of gay dodgeball league. So it's <laughs> a really, really great place to to find your community and find yourself. And it's something that a lot of our clients never even thought would be possible. But it truly is a bubble. And maybe you wouldn't get that experience in, say, uh, Texas or Florida or, you know, outside of uh, San Francisco, even if it is in the U.S. Thank you for sharing that. Related to the challenges, is there anything being done to address the challenges that they face? Yeah, so I think it's it goes back to kind of our partner organizations. So every, you know, every nonprofit in kind of the Bay Area is very well connected and we all know what we do. So we kind of help people refer by referring them to wherever they need to be, whether if they need to find like a queer friendly therapist or uh, anything like that. Our organization, we actually internally work with uh, a really great kind of queer friendly therapist who kind of, uh, you know, once a quarter we we put on a little workshop and internally we, you know, delve into our work because we, you know, we deal with a lot of trauma and we want to make sure that not just our, our clients, uh, you know, we provide them the correct help, but, you know, our staff is also taken care of. We have really great organizations that, you know, you you find com community eventually and we have a lot of events now and it's really great to, you know, San Francisco was one of the last places to, to kind of open up post-pandemic, but we have a lot of great events, uh, whether it's it's Pride or any of the kind of Transgender Day of Awareness. And uh, we have the Castro Street Fair, which are really great community events to just kind of see, you know, every one from from Castro Street once a year, just out and about having a, a party. Oh my gosh, Cheer Asaf is a is an organization of, of cheerleaders who have donated money to us before. We were a beneficiary. It's really just getting out to the community and meeting people and kind of finding where your niche is really. Can you share a client story? One, as you know, in my role, we have I have a lot of people from the media reach out to me and they, they want to talk to, you know, a real asylum seeker, especially kind of during uh, the Trump administration. It was, um, you know, a request I received multiple times a day and we're really protective of our of our clients. So I do have, mm -hmm. you know, a, a client gave us permission to obviously omit their name, but use their story to, to share. So I can share that with you here. But just, you know, to preface the LGBT asylum project saves lives and something that we take great pride in because, you know, without our support, you know, many LGBTQ plus immigrants would face persecution, deporta deportation, 
abject poverty, violence, you know, or even worse if they have to go back to their home country. So, you know, the ever-evolving complex nature of the U.S. immigration system combined with the lack of access that LGBTQ plus immigrants have to resources makes asylum virtually impossible for most of our con constituents. And just sharing the story is proof of the impact uh, that can be found in client stories. And I want to share John's story today. Great. John is a gay man from Oman. And in Oman, homosexuality is a punishable offense with up to three years in prison. So growing up, John was constantly labeled as quote unquote, different from the other boys because of his mannerisms. When he realized uh, he was gay, he could not be open about it out of fear of harm at the hands of not just the Oman government who would, you know, throw him in prison for three years, but his family, his friends, his community. So he had to hide who he was. Eventually, he made it to the U.S. to, to study English, and he experienced freedom for the first time in his life. And, you know, freedom is a really kind of interesting topic in the U.S. It's a free country. And, you know, sometimes we take that for granted as, and maybe sometimes we don't, but freedom can mean so many different things. But for queer people like John or from Oman, freedom meant he could be himself for the first time. And he reached out to organization. Luckily, he found us. And, you know, it was a, a community effort. Obviously, we're supported by so many great friends and donors and supporters. But it was kind of all hands on deck. We had translation help from our volunteers. Our legal fellows got involved. Obviously, our legal director and our legal team are amazing and do, they do great work. And thanks to our amazing supporters, John could continue to live freely without fear of having mm -hmm. to return to Oman. And I'm you know, happy to report that John received his asylum approval in April of 2022. So now he's living his best life here in the Bay Area. It makes my heart so happy to hear a success story like that but i think it highlights the importance of organizations like the lgbt asylum project to assist and get as many success stories like that as possible i think it's it's the best part of my job to receive the notification when i get it from either the director of operations or um, the legal director when i get cleared to announce you know hey we received this asylum approval today it's it's the best part of of our work because oh. it's you know it's a journey they come in and asylum can take months it can take years um, mm -hmm. it's just such a complex process but once they're done with that journey it is really really rewarding and we are really really fortunate to have such a high success rate our success rate is um, 99 percent so you know we've uh, had so many positive client stories like that so many success stories and in our office we have a wall we call the the success wall so we have <laughs> a little sticker of our logo and we write the person's kind of um, how they identify so for for John's story it was just gay man from Oman and we stick it on our success mm -hmm. wall our volunteers do that on volunteer day it's going to get to a point where our success wall is going to be just full of stickers and we might need to, <laughs> to find another wall but it's just a great part of our job even um, just to talk some numbers with you in 2022 for that year our goal was to help just 550 immigrants just to do kind of consultations and applications in 2022 we broke our record uh, we helped uh, over 700. It was a total of 712 LGBTQ plus immigrants. Uh, and we revived our volunteers days last year. So in April, uh, the same month that John, the gay man from Oman, received his asylum approval, uh, we started doing our volunteer days again, which uh, was kind of a relic of the past because of the pandemic. But with the help of our returning volunteers, 
um, we were able to just get so much more work done and help so many more people. So we're really, really proud of not just our community of volunteers, but also, you know, our approval rating 99% is, is huge as of uh, December 2023, we have mm. um, 198 active cases. But in contrast, just to, you know, 99% is a huge number, obviously. But mm-hmm. to contrast that, 46 of asylum cases were granted in the fiscal year of 2022 in the U.S. So outside of our organization, our number is 99. Uh, the U.S. average is about 46%. And that was high last year. I believe in 2021, it was in the 20 percentage. Wow. Um, range so 99% is not a number to scoff at I'm so proud of that number you should and, be <laughs> you know 99% is contrasted by you know 100% pro bono so all of our services are um, 100% free of charge mm-hmm. thanks to our you know community partners and supporters you know we are the only organization that that provides 100% pro bono services to transgender gender non-conforming and intersex asylum seekers also so in their defensive asylum applications and we're really proud to kind of help the people who'd be kind of in the back of the line the you know the forgotten people not just in in the asylum world but in the queer world also amazing and the dream would be that in all of america then it would be 99 percent. but i love to hear that for the people you're helping to have such success it shows you're doing something right <laughs> yeah and it's a hundred percent kudos to to the legal team they you know with asylum you have to get very creative and they just they're doing you know work that is far beyond my understanding but you know everybody does their part everybody has a role our volunteers we are so grateful you know every month we see old volunteers return we see new volunteers come in and it's really a great sense of community. Sometimes they meet our clients. You really see your impact. And is you know, sometimes you feel really small in the world, but asylum saves lives. And we count success one life at a time. You know, at times, personally, I felt like, you know, we just aren't doing enough. There's so many people who need help. But when you think of it in the grand scheme of things, just that's one life that we've helped mm-hmm. and improved. And we've had clients who received their asylum approval, who come back to be volunteers, part of the process from the other side. And it's our organization started in 2015. So, you know, we're approaching, gosh, the eight year mark, but, <laughs> and I've been a part of it for just two of those years, but just seeing kind of, you know, the return now that people are on the other side and they've received their approval and they're coming back. Now, something that's really different for our current clients is that they have an example. So as I mentioned before, our executive director uh, is a former asylum seeker himself so he was kind of our example but now we have clients who you know have gone through the process who understand the the anxiety the not knowing what's going on and just uh, all of it and they can share their experience so it's really really interesting to be on that side for them can you describe some of the legal processes that queer asylum seekers go through that your organization assists with absolutely so i am kind of at the forefront of you know outreach in my position so everybody whether you're um, a client or you know the media you have to go through me to kind of have access to the lgbt Mm -hmm. asylum project we try to help as many people as we can obviously we help people in the san francisco asylum office jurisdiction so that's what our jurisdiction is so if you're in that um, you fill out an intake form and then you go through kind of our process so uh, we have in- interpreters who um, help us do their client's story. We put together all of their packet to turn into the asylum office. And then once you, you know, receive the, the call to your asylum interview, there there's an interpreters in person there provided by the asylum office. The attorney is virtual and the client goes in in person and they kind of share their story there. But that's kind of very, very simple 
overview of what the process looks like. This takes months, it takes years, so <laughs> it's a really, you know, dumbed down way of, of describing it. Can you tell me more about your asylum jurisdiction? Currently, the LGBT Asylum Project serves the San Francisco Asylum Office jurisdiction. There's several jurisdictions across the U.S. I believe there's 11, so we just serve the one in San Francisco. But the San Francisco jurisdiction serves all of the Bay Area and a couple weird spots outside of the Bay Area, uh, parts of uh, Washington State, so around kind of Seattle and parts of Portland. There's so many other jurisdictions. Like I mentioned, the ones close to us, Los Angeles, there's one in Texas, there's one in New York, New Jersey, Chicago, Miami, I believe. I I can't name all of them off the top of my head, but you know, they're all different. And we primarily serve the San Francisco one. You know, I'm a little familiar with the jurisdictions just because I previously worked at Ocon Law, which is our executive director's private practice. And he flew around all, all the jurisdictions. So that's why I'm familiar with them. And we just we're really fortunate to work in the San Francisco one because all the immigration judges and asylum officers that do the asylum interviews are familiar with just the, the queer culture, the queer experience, where in the past we found in, for example, we had a case uh, at Ocon Law, an asylum interview in Texas, where you know the officer didn't really understand trans experience, uh, the officer misgendered the client. So mm-hmm. we're really fortunate to be in the San Francisco asylum jurisdiction. And I believe it's a little easier. You know, obviously, it's really complex. It's really difficult to receive an approval, but at least they it's easier on the part that they understand the mm-hmm. queer experience a little bit more just because they are kind of in one of the most progressive areas in, in the U.S. What types of changes would you and your organization recommend at a national level to improve this issue or even a state or county level? Currently, the LGBT Asylum Project is the only organization that I know of that provides free help to uh, TGNCI immigrants, so transgender, non gender nonconforming and intersex. I think it's a really basic problem of funding, not just to, you know, nonprofits across, you know, nonprofits are kind of a band-aid solution to kind of a a gaping, Mm -hmm. gushing wound. Something the U.S. uh, needs to do on a national level is just better fund fund itself you know the for example the interviews for affirmative cases have been at a halt because asylum officers are you know taking care of the cases at the border and the solution is not to take less cases at the border is to it's to hire more asylum officers so mm-hmm. i think more funding for uscis on that front of hiring more judges more asylum officers would be a huge help also a change that you know we highly advocate for is obviously immigration reform, just very generic, but any sort of immigration reform is great, just not just for asylum seekers, but for the greater immigrant community. You know, we obviously focus on asylum and DACA recipients, but it would be great just in general, we advocate for immigration reform across the nation. Specific to asylum is the one-year rule. So um, if anybody's not familiar with that, the general rule in the U.S. is you have one year to apply for asylum after you you know, physically arrive here. And an issue so many people have is that they don't know that they are, that they qualify for asylum. So they'll be here in the U.S., um, you know, beyond the one-year deadline. And then all of a sudden, they learn that they were eligible for asylum. And this is something that we saw early on. 
for example, when I've participated in the volunteer days, I've talked to some of the volunteers and they're like, oh my gosh, I think I qualify for asylum. I didn't even know it was a thing. I just wanted to help a local kind of queer friendly organization. But it turned out that, you know, just so many people don't know what asylum is. So a big part mm-hmm. of my job has been just awareness and education to kind of the people in our community. But that one year deadline is is a huge just block. And it's for me, it's personally, it's just a strange kind of benchmark. You tell them one year, you know, and specifically for LGBT asylum seekers too, you know, it, it takes longer than one year to realize, you know, who you are, who you love. It's not, you know, a light switch that turns on overnight, you know, something that you have to deal with for, for years. So if you're here in the U.S. for a year and then, you know, suddenly you come to the, to accept yourself, it, it, it takes more than just 365 days. It's, it's a ridiculous number and be so helpful specifically to uh, LGBTQ asylum seekers to get rid of that role. Mm, Those are some great insights. Thank you so much. And we're getting to the end of the interview. So can you tell us how can our listeners get involved with the LGBT Asylum Project? You know, you could follow us on social media to keep up with our upcoming events. um, Which I will put in the show notes of the episode. Thank you. At LGBT Asylum Project. It's a long one, but it's it's our name. (laughs) Instagram, we're, we're more active, but we're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn, too. And a great way to get involved is our volunteer day. So if you want to donate your time, we have a volunteer day once or twice a month. So, But if you are, join our newsletter, uh, you can reach out to, to us and we, we send you an, an email reminder that, hey, this Thursday it's happening. And also donate our website, lgbtasylum.org. Uh, there's a little donation place. Any amount helps you really see your impact because, like I mentioned before, uh, we're a small organization and we're really, really grateful to, to be able to provide this help. And really, it's a team effort. Uh, not just within our staff, but in our community. It's a community mm-hmm. effort and there's no donation or there's not no amount of time that is too small. People come in and they spend one hour, you know, volunteering or they can spend the whole Thursday volunteer day uh, volunteering and it's a lot of help. Is it possible for people to volunteer if they're not in California? Absolutely. So we do take uh, remote volunteers. Again, it's kind of a positive things we took out of the pandemic is that we were able to, you know, take all of our services uh, 100% remote. And then mm-hmm. obviously there's volunteers who can help us with some stuff virtually. So you don't have to be in the Bay Area. You can get in contact with us. Uh, you can email me at uh, pr at lgbtasylum.org and I can uh, help set you up with our volunteer intake form. So uh, you can help from anywhere in the world and we'll find we'll find something for you to do. There is not a shortage of things you can help with, believe me. Even if you are, you know, remote, any way you can help the cause is you can tell your friends, your family, anyone who, who will listen basically about asylum and get mm-hmm. educated and, you know, tell them about our organization. You know, I, I know you... You know, it's, it's a big task to be an advocate for, for asylum. It's a complex topic. But education is also, you know, something that not a lot of people think about. So, you know, tell people about them, you know, find information and let people know because there's so many people who would qualify for asylum. And it's not, you know, as well known as people think. So and there's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, what is asylum? What is a refugee? Mm-hmm. What's the difference? But just getting information out there that, you know, for example, you can use our organization as uh, an example. And, and you're doing something that really great. So I really appreciate just being able to speak out on this podcast and tell you and your listeners more about just what we do because, you know, this is helping someone out there and can't say enough about the good work that, that we do. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Andres, for being on the podcast today and providing these excellent insights to our listeners. Appreciate you. We appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you. <laughs> 
Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy. And yes, we're your local MSU social workers that believe that just one person can be a light to this messy world. So keep learning, keep advocating for change, and loving our rainbow refugees. This podcast is hosted by the social work students Joy Jennings, Grace Kennedy, Chelsea Middlemiss, and Trisha Washburn as an advocacy project through Michigan State University. Check out the show notes for more information and resources. For questions, please contact rainbowasylumpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.